ballet is one of my all-time favorite practices. I think it is so beautiful with its grace and precision. It is a world of beauty and artistry. In fact, my current biggest dream is probably to do the costumes for Swan Lake. So I find myself actively on ballet TikTok and Instagram, watching their daily lives, watching them break in their point shoes. Recently, I've noticed that I've been getting a lot of videos of black and brown dancers pancaking their point shoes to match their skin tone. This is not a new practice to me. In fact, if you go deep, deep into my very unfortunate digital footprint, you'll find that I've actively posted change.org links and petitions to help raise awareness of the fact that not everyone is a shade of pink and that the whole point of point shoes is to elongate your lines and dance. And this is such a taxing practice on black and brown dancers, especially because you go through point shoes like five pairs a week. So today I wanted to really unpack the behind the scenes where a subtle yet profound issue that has lingered in the shadows for far too long in ballet is the practice of black ballerinas painting their point shoes brown. This seemingly innocuous act carries with it a weighty message about the persistent challenges faced by black dancers in the ballet community. And I want to explore the historical context, the impact on self-esteem, and the ongoing efforts for greater inclusivity within the ballet world. I've noticed that ballet has become a huge trend, ballet core, coquette, very girl blogger, but I don't think a lot of us realize how much weight this really holds. So the world of ballet has a deeply ingrained history of Eurocentrism, and for many years the standard nude or flesh-toned ballet attire has been designed with lighter skin tones in mind. But this exclusionary practice has forced black ballerinas to resort to painting their point shoes or pancaking, an essential element of their performance, an attempt to match the prescribed aesthetic. The act of painting point shoes may seem like a minor adjustment, but its implications are profound. It sends a message to black ballerinas that the natural appearance is not in harmony with what they believe is the standard of ballet. The subtle form of erasure can have a detrimental impact on their self-esteem and sense of belonging within the ballet community. And the pressure to conform to a Eurocentric ideal place an unnecessary burden on these artists, affecting their mental and emotional well-being. Point shoes are not merely accessories. The whole point is that they're an extension of the ballerina's artistry and technique. The tradition of painting them to match one's skin tone 
symbolizes the struggle for acceptance and representation within a discipline that has been slow to embrace diversity, if it really has at all. It's a symbolic gesture that highlights the need for change, challenging the outdated norms that perpetuate exclusion. And in recent years, there has been a growing awareness for the need of greater inclusivity and diversity within the ballet world. So advocacy groups, dancers, and choreographers have been vocal about the necessity of dismantling discriminatory practices. Some ballet companies and designers are beginning to recognize the importance of offering a range of point shoes that cater to dancers of all skin tones and eliminating the need for black ballerinas to resort to caking on foundation to their shoes. And that just proves the point of the power of representation, especially in artistic disciplines where the narrative is often shaped by visual elements. Seeing dancers who look like them on stage not only empowers black ballerinas, but also sends a powerful message to future generations aspiring to enter the world of ballet. Increased representation not only diversifies the visual landscape, but also enriches this art form by incorporating you know, a broader range of experiences and perspectives. So ballet actually originated in the courts of Renaissance Italy, involved as a form of entertainment closely associated with European aristocracy. As ballet spread through Europe, it became intertwined with the cultural norms and biases of the time. The visual aesthetics of ballet were molded to fit the prevailing Eurocentric standards of beauty, which often excluded individuals with diverse backgrounds and skin tones. The perception of ballet as a white-centric art form can be attributed to deeply ingrained societal norms that dominated Western culture. Historically, lighter skin tones were favored and ballet costumes, makeup, and choreography were tailored to align with this narrow definition of beauty. This practice contributed to the exclusion of individuals from racial and ethnic backgrounds that did not conform with the established standards. Throughout ballet's history, Individuals from marginalized communities faced limited opportunities within the ballet world. The lack of representation on stage and in prestigious ballet companies perpetuated stereotypes and reinforced the notion that ballet was a pursuit primarily reserved for white dancers. Discriminatory practices in auditions, casting decisions, and promotional efforts further entrenched this skewed perception. And this is so unfortunate because many talented individuals faced and still continue to face barriers to entry and limited access to training and lack of role models who looked like them. The resulting underrepresentation created an environment where aspiring dancers of color felt discouraged and excluded hindering the growth of diversity within the ballet community.
recent decades, there has been a growing awareness of the need to challenge and reshape the narrative surrounding ballet. Advocates for diversity and inclusivity have worked tirelessly to break down barriers and create opportunities for dancers from all backgrounds. Ballet companies, choreographers, and educators are increasingly committed to promoting diversity and showcasing a broader range of talent and dismantling the historical perception that ballet is exclusively for white individuals. But through my research, the history of black ballerinas is a testament to resilience and determination and the breaking down of barriers in a world where they were often overlooked. But it's not all bad. There are numerous trailblazers and pioneers of these ballerinas that dates back to the early 20th century when dancers like Janet Collins and Reven Wilkinson emerged in the field. Janet, in 1951, became the first African-American prima ballerina at the Metropolitan Opera House, breaking racial barriers and paving the way for future generations. Raven faced discrimination during her career in the 1950s, but persisted in her pursuit of ballet excellence, ultimately dancing with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Despite these obstacles, dancers like Arthur Mitchell, who founded the Dance Theatre of Harlem in 1968, sought to create a space where dancers could thrive and contribute to the world of ballet. The establishment of this renowned dance company marked a significant step towards inclusivity within the ballet world. And in recent decades, a new generation of ballerinas has continued to make waves in the dance community. Misty Copeland, appointed as the first African-American principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater in 1915, shattered glass ceilings and brought attention to the need for diversity in ballet. Copeland's success has inspired countless young dancers and reinforced the idea that talent knows no racial or ethnic boundaries. I think she is an incredible dancer. I followed her for such a long time. The landscape of ballet is gradually changing as more ballet companies and institutions recognize the importance of diversity. There are a lot of initiatives promoting inclusivity, such as diversity-focused training programs and outreach efforts. Those are contributing to a more representative ballet community. And by acknowledging the contributions of these ballerinas and actively working to break down systemic barriers. The dance world is taking steps towards a more inclusive and equitable future. There, now there are a few ballet point shoe companies that do create, I think, a brown and a black shade of point shoe. But of course, every dancer has their preference to their shoes, and maybe that particular brand doesn't work as well for them. So there's always that aspect, and of course, finding the correct shade of foundation and makeup to pancake on has not always been easy either. So I wanted to kind of move into the makeup industry that has long been a powerful force in shaping beauty standards and trends across the globe. And despite its influence, 
a critical issue still persists, which is the lack of comprehensive skin tone range in many makeup brands. This deficiency not only limits the choices available to consumers, but also perpetuates a narrow definition of beauty. Now, historically, the beauty and cosmetics industry has been criticized for favoring lighter skin tones and neglecting the diverse range of colors found in human complexions. I mean, even the other day, I was looking for a new foundation because I'm so much paler and I kept going to the employees because I was hoping that somebody would know me better than I knew myself and could take a look at me and decide that I had a pink undertone or a neutral undertone. And I found that they kept giving me darker shades or not the right shade or the wrong undertone. And at some point I had to go back and pick out my own. But I sat there with myself and I was so angry because I was like, what's wrong with the fact that I'm Casper the ghost? I think it's so weird how either you're too light and they want to make you darker or it's the other way around. You're not too dark, too light. You're not too anything. Your skin is just your skin and it is what it is and it looks the way that it is and matter for pink, neutral, cool, all of it, all of it matters. You don't need to change anything. And the thing that I really went in there for, I wanted to change my makeup because I just wanted to put on a simple look that blended in with my skin and go about my day. I really don't want to smear orange on my face and have to blend it, blend it, blend it because it's not cute to be so white apparently. She was like, no, this will help you. So I just think this historical bias has deep roots in societal perceptions of beauty. And in addition to that, how lucky I was to be able to go back in the store and end up finding my shade and having so many brands to choose from when I was looking for what shade I am. Where that's not always been the case for everybody, and we're going to get into that right now. So one of the primary reasons for the incomplete skin tone range in the makeup industry lies in economic considerations. Some brands may argue that producing a broad spectrum of shades is not financially viable. However, this viewpoint fails to recognize the purchasing power of consumers from various ethnic backgrounds. The global market is diverse and meeting the needs of a broader customer base can lead to increased sales and brand loyalty. The consequences though, as we all know, of an incomplete skin tone range extends beyond economic considerations and marketing strategies. The psychological impact on individuals with darker skin tones can be significant. When people struggle to find products that cater to their complexion, even me, it sends a message that they are not considered part of the mainstream beauty narrative. And this lack of inclusivity can contribute to feelings of exclusion, low self-esteem, 
and the perpetuation of harmful beauty standards. So in recent decades, there has been a gradual shift in societal attitudes, accompanied by increased awareness and activism around issues of representation and inclusivity as consumers and advocates pushed for more diversity in the beauty industry, some brands began expanding their shade range to be more inclusive. I think the first brand that we think of when we think of inclusivity is Fenty by Rihanna. She really, really pioneered this. And I'm pretty sure she's known for having 40 shades, which is beautiful. And when this first came out, she got so much praise. I remember this so vividly, and it was so exciting for everybody because not only was there deep, deeper shades than we'd ever seen before, there were also extremely light shades that we've never seen before either. And so many brands were coming out saying that, well, they had 40 shade range and foundation. I think it was Makeup Forever. And it was scientifically proven that even their deepest shades or lightest shades didn't have the correct undertones and weren't really handcrafted the way Rihanna's were. And the rise of social media platforms has provided another platform for consumers to voice their concerns and demand greater inclusivity. I know influencers and beauty advocates have played a pivotal role in holding brands accountable and encouraging the development of products that cater to all skin tones. Most makeup brands sported foundation lines of about 12 to 15 non-inclusive shades. Therefore, historically, makeup brands have not prioritized shade diversity in their products. But of course, the Fenty effect is widely recognized as the turning point in makeup inclusivity. I can't go on without talking about Rihanna. <laughs> it is widely recognized as the turning point in makeup inclusivity, forever changing the way that brands release and market their products. After Fenty, many brands scrambled to achieve the success of Rihanna, who began her empire with 40 shades, like I said, of the best-selling Pro Filter Foundation. Despite this new standard, do you remember this? Like, this was such a turning point in history. I This is the first thing I thought of when I was thinking of what I was going to talk about in this episode, where after, ex like, exactly after Rihanna released this, and it was beautiful, it was amazing, Tarte released a foundation that went absolutely insane because it had literally, like, five shades. So at the time, Tarte only had its concealer, and it was a good concealer, right? I had it, I bought it a few times, and then they came out with their foundation version, which everyone was so excited for because the shape tape was so iconic. But that release only included 15 shades, 11 of which were suitable for only the palest of consumers leading to dark-skinned or even medium-skinned individuals having just four shades, four shades, and looking at the original line. And just the thought of that is so painful 
you know, makeup and cosmetics are one of the biggest forms of expression and some of the biggest modern trends revolve around cosmetics. So to not be included in something like that can lead to feelings of self-doubt and insecurity for those who are literally unable to participate in the biggest trends, which can feel isolating, especially surrounded and being kind of visually assaulted on platforms like YouTube and TikTok with white people who can, like me, who can walk into a store and easily fit into the foundation shades that are the current standard. So this is me trying to do a little bit of my part by bringing this to your attention. I know my audience and I know how much we love makeup and beauty and ballet and anything girly and fun and I just want us all to remember that not everybody feels involved in that and I wanted to highlight that in a way that was interesting and that might be helpful. So there's a few change petitions out there right now. I know that I've signed Misty Copeland's on changing the apple pink point shoe to have a more the shade range that they have for a lot of the other emojis. Ultimately, you know, a lot of people are like, it's just emoji, who cares? But I think it's a way of opening discourse for the problem with point shoes and the underlying message behind that. And there are countless petitions and ways you can get involved in helping the makeup industry and the ballet industry. And I will have them posted and saved in my stories highlights on Instagram if you want to pitch in too. Kisses.